So uh, we've been in um, a series called Paul's Letters to Timothy. Uh, we're in 2 Timothy now. And so uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, in our text this morning is the first 13 verses. Uh, so I invite you to uh, read along or follow, follow along with me as I read. Um, and I'm reading from the NRSV and we're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, the first 13 verses. It says this. Uh, you then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to reach and teach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. So think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Now remember Jesus Christ, who raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory." Now the saying is sure. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As I was thinking about this passage uh, and the three metaphors that Paul employs in the first section, uh, it, it struck me that um, I was trying to find kind of the commonality between all these metaphors. And as I was thinking about that, uh, it struck me that we often frame our faith in Jesus uh, as something that enhances our already comfortable lives, okay? Uh, so let me say it this way. It's easy for uh, Americans who often by world standards uh, are often wealthy, right? And, and while some of us would, would not consider ourselves wealthy, certainly by kind of world wealth standards, many Americans are wealthy. And it's easy for us then as, as kind of wealthy Americans to, to look to add, uh, to look to Jesus to add just that kind of little bit of spiritual element to our already comfortable and blessed lives, uh, hoping that if we add a little bit, bit of religion, then we'll add even a little bit of blessing along the way. And so we kind of, if I can employ a metaphor, uh, we sometimes accessorize our lives with Jesus, hoping that doing so will bring us a little bit of blessing. Um, and this week, uh, actually, I, I came across a perfect example of this kind of mindset. Now, I want to be careful here and not provide too much commentary, uh, but I don't know if you've heard, uh, but Kanye West recently released, people are like, oh, this is derailed so fast. Uh, so Kanye West recently released a new album called Jesus is King. Uh, he now professes faith in Christ and calls himself a Christian, which has captured the imagination of much of pop culture. Uh, and he's done media rounds uh, to promote the new album. And uh, many guests, what I've noticed is that many of the hosts of the different kind of media outlets and shows where he's been visiting are asking him significant and weighty questions uh, looking to find the authenticity of this transformation, okay? So in, in an interview with uh, late show host James Corden, Kanye West says this, uh, that he received a tax return in the amount of tens of millions of dollars uh, and, and says explicitly that that came to him because of his faith in Jesus Christ. 
okay? <laughs> so, whisper to your neighbor your opinion. Uh, and then, uh, so then he goes on to say, he goes on to say uh, that any success that he has had and will continue to have is just God showing off uh, through his life. Uh, so in his mind, Kanye's successes are God showing off because he is now a Christian. Uh, or, to put it a little more bluntly, to put a little finer point on it, if you add a little bit of Jesus, uh, then you get a little bit of blessing. Okay? Uh, and, and so, now, with, in, the, in the example I just shared, it's a little bit exploded, right? Because you have someone who has a huge platform already, kind of this worldwide following. You have all these media outlets. The numbers are exploded, right? None of us could ever expect tens of millions of dollars on a tax return. Okay, so, so the numbers are a bit exploded. So we tend to say, oh, this is, this is outside the realm of reality. Uh, but... Uh, but isn't it true that, that sometimes in our mindset, we think if I, if I add a little bit of Jesus, then I'm going to get kicked back with a little bit of blessing, okay? And uh, th- th- this is called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is when we draw this kind of direct correlation or this straight line between the amount of my faith and the amount of blessing that I receive in my life, Okay. So any kind of prosperity gospel is when we, our theology draws a straight line of correlation between those two things. So if I increase my faith uh, and, and whatever that looks like, right, then, then God is therefore obligated to bring more blessing to me. And so while in the example of Kanye West, we tend to think, oh, this is outside the realm of, of reality, um, I think if we're honest, um, there's a good bit of kind of that sort of mindset that can happen to us, uh, that we just kind of add Jesus on as an accessory to bring greater blessing to our lives. Uh, Now, while Paul, the Apostle Paul, is quick to say, as we learned at the end of the chapter, at the end of the the first Timothy, Paul is quick to say that following Jesus does lead us into what he calls life that is life, that is actually life, right? So, so that there is this kind of enhanced quality of life to following Jesus. And the term that Paul often uses is eternal life. And we talked about how eternal life is not just quantity of time of life, it's not just living forever after you die, but it's a quality of life that we're being invited into here and now, that our eternal lives have already begun. And Paul is inviting us that walking in the ways of Jesus is going to lead us into life that is actually life or eternal life. So Paul is quick to say that there is this kind of sense of personal life and benefit, there is something to be received from following Jesus. Are you with me? Now, Paul, though, is also clear that sometimes following Jesus will bring about hardship. That sometimes it's actually your faith in Jesus that will bring hardship or difficulty to you and to your life. And certainly faith in Jesus does not exempt you from difficulty or struggle or challenges in life. Okay, uh, And as a reminder, he actually writes this letter to Timothy while imprisoned for teaching, the, teaching and preaching the gospel. Okay, So he's, he's writing this as someone who knows what it means to suffer who's intimately familiar with kind of the ups and downs of life. And so as Timothy was experiencing kind of this hostile environment, both politically and socially, Paul says, you are going to need some strength. Uh, You are going to need the strength of God's grace in order to remain strong. So Paul is saying, you are going, this could get hard, Timothy. 
<laughs> and you're going to need the strength of God's grace. Now, you remember from chapter 1 in the Second Timothy, T Timothy already knows this is hard, right? Because we, we have evidence that Timothy is in tears as he tries to minister to the church in Ephesus. And he's trying to kind of direct and, and guide and, and provide some correction for some weird teaching that's been going on. And he is experiencing that hardship. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's right. Uh, this is sometimes how it is. And you're going to need the strength of God's grace to get you through. And Paul then employs three metaphors to encourage Timothy to stay strong. Three metaphors to encourage Timothy to stay strong. And they kind of come at us like a bullet list uh, in those first few verses that we read. And the first, and the one that gets the most attention, is the metaphor of a soldier. Uh, now, let me just be honest with you for a moment, okay? If I'm honest, and I want to be, I've become more uncomfortable in recent years with militaristic metaphors. Uh, and the reason is because, in my opinion, thinking of ourselves as soldiers for Jesus can, have some, can sometimes have negative and un unintended consequences, both for ourselves and for others. Okay, so if I'm just honest, when I come across militaristic metaphors, I'm often not that comfortable. <laughs> and yet, here it is, like the metaphor that gets the most attention is a soldier, okay? So what is Paul actually saying, and what is he saying here? So, so nevertheless, Paul employs this metaphor because the life of a soldier requires discipline, and obedience. The life of a soldier requires discipline and it requires obedience. And Paul is thinking these are good and necessary things that will serve Timothy well in his, in his context. Okay? So he's kind of drawing from what is, what is the life of a soldier? What does it require? It requires a ton of, of, of uh, self-discipline. It requires a ton of obedience to, to people who are, are higher ranking than you. And so he's saying that is a, that is a good, those two disciplines are a good thing and are going to serve you well as you minister to the church in Ephesus. But in addition to that, a soldier must also have focused attention on a cause that is greater than himself or herself. Okay? A soldier must have focused attention on a cause that is greater than themselves. And this is what is meant when he says soldiers share in suffering and they don't get entangled in everyday affairs, okay? And I've not ever been a soldier. I know that some of you have. And, and, and you can know and you could probably bear witness to this reality that if you are going to stay motivated with, with, to the task, you have to be connected to the cause that is greater than yourself. That You can't just get so entangled with what's happening right in front of me. I've got to have an idea of what the bigger picture is. And so the soldier then works to please the commanding officer who, and I want you to hear this, if, if the commanding officer is doing their job well, also has the larger picture in mind and gives commands accordingly. You with me? That, that, that the soldier has to, have, has to walk in line to obedience to the commanding officer. And if the commanding officer is doing his job well, then he is going to be connected to the larger task and then give those kind of everyday orders according to the larger task, okay? Um, and so this is kind of what Paul is talking about. So in other words, in his opinion, this is kind of a good, really good metaphor 
for the work that Timothy is doing. It's going to require this kind of self-discipline. It's going to require obedience to the, to the way of Jesus, to the Messiah. And it's going to, uh, that he needs to stay connected to the cause that is larger than himself. That it's so easy to kind of lose the forest through the trees, as we say, right? And, and so Paul employs this metaphor as a way of saying, Timothy, you are working toward a greater cause that is larger than yourself as you work to proclaim the kingdom of God and the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ. You with me? Okay, so while I'm uncomfortable sometimes with militaristic metaphors, I, I get it and I understand it. And I think that there's a lot of, of truth and value to what uh, this, this metaphor that's being employed. Now, the second one that he uh, uses is uh, one from athletics and the, uh, the metaphor of an athlete. And this is interesting too, because Paul actually does this a couple times in his letters. And there's some evidence that Timothy was a, a young athletic chap right? Uh, that were he not to, yes, chap. Some of you are like, did he just say that? Yep, I did. Uh, he was a young athletic chap. And so, uh, so, so there's some evidence that, that Paul is using this metaphor because it's going to identify well with Timothy, uh, who himself enjoys sporting. Uh, so, he's, so he switches then to this metaphor of, of an athlete. And he says, an athlete that is crowned as a champion must compete according to the rules. <laughs> Which is so interesting, right? So like on one hand, we, I would want to, on one hand, we could take the very surface level interpretation, and I would encourage us to be careful not to do this, uh, but we could take this so literally and, and kind of leave this, this verse saying, uh, rules are great and they should be followed. Amen and amen, right? And, and, and sometimes, that, that's, that, sometimes that's true. Like rules are there for a purpose and they probably should be followed. Uh, so I'm not saying like go break all the rules, but I am saying that there's a richer, deeper truth that this passage is, that even this verse alone, this metaphor is pointing us to, okay? So, so let's think about this. Paul says, an athlete can't be crowned champion uh, if he doesn't compete according to the rules. Um, in any athletic contest, there are rules of engagement, okay? And some of you, um, some of you love sports, and you've got your team, and, and some of you are on the complete other spectrum, and you're like, yay, sports ball, right? Uh, so, <laughs> but either way, I think we can grab a hold of this, this metaphor, okay? And, and it's this. In, in any athletic contest, there are rules of engagement, and the rules are there to ensure fair play between the teams, so if you want to score, there are certain things you can't do, and there are certain things you must do, right? And further, uh, there are time limits that are enforced to make sure that you don't just stall the game, that every game has kind of this, this time limit to make sure that you're not just stalling. And, and so if you want to be crowned champion, you must obey or work according to these rules of engagement. Which means you must, when you go to refine your skill, you must refine your skills with these rules of engagement in mind. And so what Paul is essentially saying is in athletics, there are no shortcuts to success. The rules are there to ensure that you can't cheat or shortcut your way to the championship. Okay? Uh, go Nats, right? Yeah! <laughs> okay. There's like two baseball fans here. That's okay. Um, so... So, so there's no shortcuts in sports. And essentially Paul is saying, there are no shortcuts in the work of the kingdom of God. 
Thought for sure I'd get some amens there. But I understand why I didn't. Because we live, we are, we are the church, the body of Christ, housed inside of a culture that is drunk on immediacy. Right? And, and so we, we have everything right here, right now, at the, at the, just at our fingertips. And so when we talk about like, the kind of the long-term nature of the work of the kingdom of God, it's hard to get excited about that. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a dissenter when it comes to church leaders. Uh, a lot of times when I gather with uh, my colleagues and uh, church leaders on the district, um, a lot of the conversation is surrounding like uh, the next new thing, doing this, uh, like double the size of your church in a year, do this. Like it's just kind of like all on how do we make disciples? And the answer is we do a four-week Bible study and then like you, people kind of go in and then they're spit out as fully formed disciples at the end of four to six weeks, right? So we, we kind of think that we can... Uh, grow churches immediately. We think that we can form disciples through a single Bible study. We think all this stuff. And, and, and I'm always the, the dissenting voice. I'm always, I'm always the guy in the back going, listen, formation uh, is a crock pot, not a microwave. Okay? And, and everybody's like, you know, what, Andy's back there just doing his, spouting his stuff, you know. Uh, and so I've kind of got a reputation for, like, people are like, how do you make disciples? Because we did this six-week Bible study. And I'm like, here's how we make disciples. We follow the liturgical calendar. And everyone's like, what? Because <laughs> I'm like, formation doesn't happen through a single time. It happens through a, a whole, like, rhythm of time, through the course of years, Right? Uh, and, and that's not very exciting and it doesn't sell any books and I couldn't like sell out a church conference, okay? Uh, I could not sell out a church growth conference. But I think, I think it's important that we recognize that there are no shortcuts in the work of the kingdom of God. There are no shortcuts in your own formation. And it's such an important, such an important message. Um, particularly for the church in this time. Because, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the, by the prophetic imagination of Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene Peterson, many years ago, many years ago, uh, wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's like its title basically pointing us to the reality that if you want to be formed in the ways of love, in the ways of Christ, you have to have a long and steady obedience in the same direction. That it takes time. And uh, there are no shortcuts. There is nothing fast or immediate about being formed into the community of God. Okay? And, and I know that doesn't get a lot of amens, but I think it's something that needs to be said. It, we, we need to recognize that. Um, and then Paul, the third metaphor that Paul employs is the metaphor of a farmer. And he essentially says that if a farmer wants to enjoy the harvest, uh, then they must go out and do the work of cultivation. Uh, that is to say that uh, there, there's a whole process of things that happen before you just harvest, reap the harvest of your crops. 
that there's, that there's planting, there's cultivation, there's work, there's watering. We talked just a couple of weeks ago about how there are some things that are within my control, some things that are not in my control, uh, that kind of gives me this idea that even this, this, this process of cultivation and growth and harvest is a divine and miraculous process so that when food ends up on my table, I can give thanks to God because there were some things that were beyond my control, right? And so we talked about that, and yet here we are again with, with this metaphor of a farmer, and he's saying that, listen, if you want to have the harvest, then that farmer, the farmer who wants to enjoy the harvest, is the one who ought to have done the hard work of cultivation. But a farmer could, if they so choose, do what has been done throughout history, which is to hire laborers who get little, if any, of the harvest but do all the cultivation on behalf of the farmer, right? So Paul is essentially saying you could do what some have done and do throughout history, and that is, I'm the farmer, I hire out the cultivation, but to those who do all the cultivating work, I give little or none of the harvest, and then I reap all the harvest for myself. And Paul says, in your spiritual formation or in your work for the kingdom of God, Timothy, do not be like the absentee landlord (laughs) who just expects to reap the harvest, but rather get involved in the process so that you can then enjoy the spoils of harvest. You with me? Paul's warning is that we should not approach our Christian life like an absentee landlord who expects the spoils of harvest without any of the effort. And so all three metaphors are kind of pointing us to this this central point, this, this, this connecting point, which is where I began. Like, what is the central thread that runs through all of these metaphors? And that is this. Following Jesus is not always easy. (laughs) Following Jesus is not always easy. That you're going to need to be aware that you are working for something greater than yourself and you'll be, you need to be willing to endure challenges in order to accomplish the greater goal. Okay? The greater goal, which is both the formation of myself and the good of the world. But, that, but it won't just all be easy and up and to the right. That there'll be some challenges. And so he employs all three metaphors and the the, the connecting thread between all of them is that there is work involved and that it isn't always easy. Are you with me? How about this for an encouraging message, right? (laughs) Following Jesus isn't always easy. But I think if you've been following Jesus for a while, I think we can say, yeah, he's right. Well, then beginning in verse eight, there's a transition in the passage that I want to talk briefly about as I close the message. And that is, where Paul talks about the strength of God's word. And he does this cool kind of word play where he says, though I am in chains for the gospel, uh, the word of God is not chained. So, so though I am in chains as, a, as one who proclaims the gospel, though I am physically in chains, there is no way to chain up the word of God. And it's this, this recognition, this, this kind of beautiful word play to recognize the power of words particularly God's word. And and essentially what he's saying is in a culture that that has political and social threat due to the proclamation of the gospel, right? This is, by the way, a a world that we don't know a lot about. 
because uh, we don't face persecution for our faith. We don't ha- we're not threatened in any way by, by practicing Christian faith at all. We're gathering here in public, in open, without any, uh, without any shame or uh, hiddenness to it at all. And so we don't really know about this, but the immediate context and culture that Paul and Timothy find themselves in is that the proclamation of the gospel finds themselves under political and social threat. Okay? And, and, and so he says... Even though I am physically in chains, the word of God is not in chains, and it's a recognition of the power of words, and God's word in particular, and very specifically he's saying the word of God is more powerful than prison walls or iron chains. That you cannot stop, that these walls and these chains cannot prohibit or stop or slow down the word of God and the proclamation of the gospel. Okay? It's good news. And, and here's, here's essentially what's happening. Christianity's central claim is that Jesus Christ is Lord, which by implication means Caesar is not. Okay? And in, a, in, a, in an empire that had forced allegiance to the empire, so that if you did not proclaim Caesar as Lord, you were under physical threat, you were under physical danger, any kind of claim, any alternative claim, a claim such as Jesus Christ is Lord, is going to fly right in the face of empire. And Paul is essentially saying, if you are going to make that claim, if you're going to hold on to Christianity's central claim that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you better be ready for some pushback. Because the claim of Jesus' kingship is the very thing that causes them trouble and that they're going to need strength to endure that trouble. And again, Paul is very familiar with this. Familiar with this claim, given his times in prison, says that when you are facing trouble for making authentic Christian claims, then that's when you know the word is doing its work. Did you hear that? When you are facing trouble for making authentic Christian claims, that's when you're doing it right. (laughs) In other words, if 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 there's not some measure of of internal conflict or with, with this idea and this relationship between my allegiance to Jesus and my allegiance to other things, if there's not some sort of rub there, then essentially you're not doing it right. <laughs> okay? It's pretty, pretty difficult words. In other words, here, here's just one example. You can't speak about forgiveness in an empire built on violence and get away with it, right? That if you're, if you're following truthfully and honestly the ways of Jesus, then at some point it's going to hit against or rub against uh, the, the culture surrounding you. And if, if there's not ever any rub, uh, then chances are we're not doing it quite right, yeah? Um, and, and that doesn't mean that, the, that we all, I'm not calling us all into existential angst, right? I'm not, in, I'm not encouraging that. But, but I am saying uh, that our faith in Jesus is uh, the highest allegiance of our lives. Um, at least it should be. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And then he ends with a poem um, about the nature of God. And I think it's a great It's a great poem. It kind of has echoes of Philippians chapter 2. It has echoes of a poem in Isaiah. Um, But the poem poem says this. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, 
He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, if you're anything like me, there's kind of loud, resounding amens until you get to that middle line. <laughs> that if I deny him, he will also deny me. And, and that's where it gets really sticky. Okay, so let's kind of think about this poem line by line for a little bit. Um, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. For the Apostle Paul, there is this, this clear identification uh, with Christ for the Christian. Uh, that, that we are called to a, a kind of death, uh, a dying to ourselves uh, so that we might join in with the life of Christ. Uh, and, and I know that the metaphor is difficult to, to even grasp or to grab a hold of, but essentially what Paul is calling us to is this radical identification with Christ, uh, who himself has defeated death, who, who reigns over all of creation. And that's not the, to say that we become gods, but it's to say that we are sharing in as we participate with Christ, we are sharing in that reigning, uh, that we are called to be kind of co-rulers with Christ, to, to rule on behalf of God, which is to say that if God has called us to care for creation as co-rulers with Christ, we go and then we care for creation. We, we order creation for the good of all people. We establish relationships with people where every person has value because that's how God rules, is every person has value because his kingdom doesn't have any national boundaries. His kingdom is over all of the world, right? And, and so as co-rulers, co-reigners with Christ, we are to establish that rule. And so for Paul, there's always this radical identification with Christ. Does this make sense? Okay, I know we've kind of taken a, dive, a deep dive into the theology pool here. Uh, but there's this, this identification with Christ, which is what Paul is saying in that first line of the poem, that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And then he says, if we endure, that is, if we are patient, then we will also reign with him. We'll become fully, will live fully into our, our vocation as co-rulers with Christ. So it's essentially saying, if we are patient, then one day all things will be made new. All things will be made right. All things will be as they should be. And then the curious third line. If we deny Christ, he will also deny us. And I think what essentially is being said here is that God is not going to co-opt or coerce us. But in the end, and right now, God will always honor our free will. God will always honor our free will to either accept him or reject him. And so if we are rejecting him, then, then he will honor that. Okay? This is, so it's not, it's not saying that, that God is sort of angry toward those who reject him or deny him, but rather he's just saying, God, God in his love is never willing to coerce and God in his love is never willing to kind of co-opt our free will, but will always radically honor our free will, okay? And then, and then the fourth line, which I think is so fantastic. Like Paul says, hey, listen, if you deny him, he's gonna deny you. And then he says, in the moments when you are faithless, God is going to remain faithful. And essentially saying that there is one disposition of God toward humanity and that is one of radical love. You with me? The radical love that says, I will not co-opt your free will and radical love that says, even in the midst of your faithlessness, I will remain faithful, which is to say the door is always open. The door always remains open for us to come to Christ, to come to God. 
And, he's, and then he essentially says, uh, then he says, because he cannot deny himself. He, th- this is essential to God's nature. God's nature is essentially love. And so, because of that, he cannot ever deny the ways of love, including honoring ourself, honoring our, our free will, right? Does this make sense? Okay. I know, I know that's a deep dive, okay? But, uh, but hang, hang with me. I think, I think we get the main gist of it. I love the closing poem because it's pointing us again to the character of who God is. And I really think that a sermon has never done its work until it gives us a clearer picture of God and points us to the character of God, points us to Christ. And we can have all the kind of to-dos and lists and acronyms and all that, so we can have all that, but the sermon has never done its work until it points us to the character of God. And um, luckily for me, on this week, our passage ends by Paul doing exactly that. Um, and so my, my prayer then is um, that we would be committed to the ways of love that reflect the character of God and the character of Christ. Um, and that we would be committed to the ways of love even in the midst of pushback and challenge, right? Uh, because Paul is clear that following Jesus isn't always easy. Uh, following the ways of Christ is not always going to earn you a pat on the back from empire. And so my prayer is that we would be radically committed to the way of love, even in the midst of pushback and challenge, and that that God would give us the strength of his grace, which is really where this passage starts, is the strength of God's grace. Uh, Timothy, Paul is pointing Timothy, hey, you're going to need the strength of God's grace. Like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. Because even as I am in chains, the word of God cannot be chained, and the character of God is true and steady. Amen? Amen. Well, let's say a word of prayer, and then I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and thank you for this, uh, this word from your scriptures that encourages us, but also is just really challenging today. It's challenging to kind of just recognize and admit that following you isn't always easy. It doesn't always, uh, doesn't always lead to um, material or physical blessing, God, we're thankful for the blessings that we enjoy, uh, but man, we recognize that there's not just this straight line between our faithfulness and, and our level of blessing as, as would be so easy to believe. Uh, but instead, there are some times when following your ways leads us into challenge and, and difficulty. And so God, we pray that we would remain faithful to you and that we would... Um, Learn what it means more and more to be the people of God in this time and in this place. God, thanks for a community of people where we can gather together and we can think about these things, we can be challenged by these things, where we can have conversations around what this means. Um, and recognizing, God, that not all of us will come always to the same conclusions, but we can all wrestle together uh, as your people. And so form us uh, and shape us, God, more into your likeness. 
And thank you for the gifts of, of things like uh, music that allow us to worship, communion that gives us a space to recognize your presence among us, to take in your very life. Um, thank you, God, for the gift of prayer and communing with you. Uh, Lord, may all the things that we do on a Sunday morning be means of grace for us, uh, be ways of forming us as your people. Uh, Lord, we thank you. Uh, we love you. Be with us now as we gather around your table. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.